Welcome to this Changeboard Future Talent podcast. I'm Jim Carrick-Burtwell, Chief Exec and Co-Founder of Changeboard. Today we present Alain de Botton's keynote speech from Changeboard's Future Talent Conference in 2017. An author of best-selling books in over 30 countries, Alan's work has been described as a philosophy of everyday life. In 2008, he founded the School of Life, an educational company that offers advice on how to navigate modern living. In this keynote speech, Alan argued that human beings' prevailing emotional state of existence is one of anxiety, an emotion we often look to suppress. How can you help unpick these feelings to help your own and your employees' evolution? Thank you so much. Um, you know, we should be easy on ourselves because what we're trying to do is something very, very hard that most generations, most working generations have not had to face up to, and that is to enjoy our work. It, it's, it's a very new challenge that we've set ourselves. For most of human history, the notion that you would be not only earning your living from work, but also delivering the highest kind of satisfaction would have sounded utterly bizarre. In fact, the same thing goes on in, uh, in relationships. The other night, my wife and I, had been, we'd been staying with my mother-in-law, very dear lady, and we'd been having quite a few arguments. And, um, and, and, and she sort of picked up on this. Anyway, then we had a sort of nice time and were relaxing towards the end of the evening. And my wife had gone to bed, and, um, and I said, well, you know, I'm sorry that sometimes we, you know, we get into these uh, sessions. And uh, she went, don't worry, I understand. Um, it was, much, it was much easier for us. And I said, why was it much easier for you, for your generation? She said, well, we weren't trying to be happy. Uh, <laughs> and, and at this very, you know, it depends what the bar of the expectation is. So unfortunately, for better or for worse, we're trying to be happy in the workplace. And this is creating a lot of problems. For most of human history, the only management tool you needed was a whip. Uh, nowadays, that's not going to be great. We're working with some of the most complicated pieces of technology ever uh, uh, generated in the cosmos, namely human beings. And human beings are inherently very tricky. And most of the disasters of nations and companies come down ultimately to problems not in knowledge, not in technical skills, but in a weirder other part of the mind, which we're still struggling to know how to name, but we like to call the emotional skills area. We are lacking the right emotional skills. And it's because of this that people come unstuck. If you think of most employees who've caused your organizations any trouble, they had the right degree. That wasn't the problem. But there was a psychological problem, if you like, an emotional problem. And that's what created uh, the, uh, the issue. Unfortunately, we're still lagging. It's still a relatively uphill struggle to try and get across to the powers that be that this stuff matters and that it matters as much as the IT system, as much as anything else that's procedural or technical. The emotional is part of the bottom line. It's not some beautiful luxury that one indulges in. It's part of a, a company's survival strategy. But it is remarkable how hard uh, uh, that is. Part of the reason, part of the problem is that we insist on thinking that other people, and indeed ourselves, are normal. And this is perhaps the most pernicious lie which we take into the workplace. The notion of professionalism is a really tricky one. Um, we know in private life that private life is complicated. And because we know it's complicated, there's quite a lot of room for allowance. So if you say to people, you know, I've been having a little trouble with my partner, but we're going to see a therapist, or we've had quite a, lot, a number of discussions, and uh, people won't think you're mad or crazy. They'll just think it's part of what you need to do to make a relationship work. Unfortunately, when we go into the workplace, we caricature ourselves. We suggest we are simpler than we are. 
And the mask that we put on, the mask of professionalism, sometimes it's all right. It means that no one's going to shout at you, no one's going to openly insult you. But it also means that an enormous amount of vital emotional knowledge is not going to be properly communicated uh, to the downfall and serious detriment of the company. Um, so we need, I think, in the companies of the future to make a blanket acknowledgement, not a personal acknowledgement. Because if you say to somebody, look, you're the crazy one over there, you've got some problems, they're going to they're get very defensive. The, the, the thing that really would help most companies is if over the door, it's a relatively private door, but in a way a door that everybody sees is we are all crazy, we are all idiots, right? It, no one would feel personally targeted. And against that sort of a baseline, everybody is, everybody's quirks and weaknesses and temperamental difficulties would be, uh, seem much less of a kind of impertinence or a violation of some notion of normality. So, you know, there's a wonderful book by the Renaissance uh, philosopher Erasmus called In Praise of Folly. And what Erasmus tried to do in In Praise of Folly is to say that we only begin to become wise the moment we acknowledge that most of the time we are completely mad. So in praise of folly. And he goes through all sorts of examples of people who thought they knew. We would say that they were professional. He would say that they were competent, that they were rational, uh, that they were intelligent. These words, these <laughs> terms of praise, are also very dangerous words that, in a way, cut us off from acknowledging our humanity and our weakness. And if we manage to acknowledge our humanity and our weakness properly, we'll be able to deal with it properly, process it properly, and interact properly uh, with, uh, with our colleagues. You know, I'm representing an organization called the School of Life, and we have a lovely uh, phrase that we invented that you should try and treat your colleague. We call it the colleague as child theory. And um, let me explain. You know, many of us have children or experience of children, and one of the things that's amazing about the way that we nowadays parent, we didn't always parent very well. Nowadays, most people, most people in this room are going to be pretty good parents, certainly compared to two generations back. The reason is that when certain patterns of behavior come along, we're very skilled at interpreting. So let's imagine you come home from work, you're a little bit tired, your kid's got dinner uh, to eat, you're preparing something, some chicken, some broccoli, some potatoes, you put it down in front of the kid, and the kid goes, I didn't like it, and throws the whole thing on the floor. Now, what do you do? Do you hit the child? Do you go, you're trying to ruin my life? What are you doing to me, etc.? No, no, you don't, you don't do that because we, you have percolated in your mind unconsciously the work of about 80 years of childhood psychology, a lot of it done in Hampstead by people like Donald Winnicott or Melanie Klein, and their knowledge, without you ever having heard their names, is, or maybe you have, is percolating through your minds and means that what you're going to immediately do is look for other explanations for bad behavior. And if you think of the number one skill that we have around other people is to translate from a surface behavior to an underlying motive which may not be immediately visible. So instead of hitting the kid and going, you are evil because you've done something annoying, you start to say, okay, maybe you're tired. Maybe you've got a sore tooth. Maybe you're jealous of your little sister. Whatever it is, but you're looking for explanations to take the sting of bad behavior. We know how to do this stuff with kids. We don't do it with one another very reliably in relationships. You know, if your spouse walked in at that moment and said something slightly off, you'd go, what are you trying to do? I've had a horrible day, etc. Again, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing... It's an act of love, an act of love. You know, people talk about love a lot. I think that what love really means is the willingness to go beneath someone's pretty tricky exterior to look for attenuating reasons why they may be behaving as, as they do. Needless to say, we don't do much loving. We don't do it much at home, and we don't do it much at work. But we should, because that's the way to properly understand people and get through people. So 
treating people as if at one level they were three years old is quite helpful. The problem is that when you see a three-year-old, you know it's a three-year-old. And the reason is it's very small, uh, and it looks quite cute, etc. The problem is that everyone here is kind of basically emotionally, you know, we veer between being three and 55, but, but we are certainly at level three some of the time. The problem is we look so normal. You know, we look like adults, and this is terrifically unhelpful to our efforts to try and interpret one another, because we think we're dealing with other adults. We're not. We are ourselves not fully mature, and the other is not fully mature, and that's okay. Um, so, a blanket admission of uh, uh, your deficiencies and your emotional uh, uh, weaknesses. All of us should know, for example, you know, it's amazing still, I know in interviews we can't say this, but it's a very vital question to be able to answer how are you hard to work with? Not just how are you brilliant and what great degrees you have, but how are you difficult? Because all of us are difficult to be around, and in the workplace, we're all listing too much to one side or another. We're too defensive, we're too proud, we're too optimistic, etc. And we need to understand why this has happened. And the reasons very quickly take us into psychology. You know, we were doing some work. So, at the School of Life, we do a lot of work with organizations. We were dealing with an organization that had a problem with a very senior uh, uh, em employee who um, basically couldn't stop clowning around, who was incredibly optimistic all the time. Is there a problem? Yeah, I'll fix it, etc. And they were cheerful, and they would make jokes, etc. And at one level, this was charming. At another level, it was seriously dangerous, because any bad news could not get through. Now, standard management procedures, like, what do we do with this person? They've got a great degree. They've got all sorts of technical skills. But there's something, well, there's something emotionally wrong. What do you do with this person? Well, you have to go back into the past. It emerged that this person um, had had a very depressed mother. And one of the things that very frequently occurs when someone's got a depressed parent is that they have to take on the role of being very solid before they know how to, and before indeed, indeed that responsibility should be placed on their shoulder, and they can't afford to be sad or to take on board difficulties. So they're permanently up, up. And that's great sometimes, but it also is very bad because some of what it means to be an effective person in the workplace is knowing how to digest and take on board bad news. If you can't do that because you have an emotional block, that's tricky. And if that emotional block was basically formed roughly at about the time when you were two uh, and you're now 50, that's going to be very tricky. Um, and so a very, an atmosphere where in a way, what you need to do is to stop this idea becoming uh, like a personal problem of one person. All of us have arisen from childhood with all kinds of dynamics. You know, most of us read other, it's a fascinating psychological dynamic, most of us read other people via four archetypes. Right? Uh, normally involving father and mother somewhere in the, in the way, uh, normally involving uh, sibling, normally involving also one's younger self. So well, as soon as you get into an office dynamic, you go, that's the boss. Well, it's not the boss, it's daddy, isn't it? And that's not, you know, that's mummy, uh, etc. And that's actually your little sibling. And interestingly, your little sibling, you like to bully them. Ah, so that's maybe why you're doing that thing every time. So, you know, it's really weird stuff. It's kind of, it, it could be seen as humiliating. It isn't. It's actually a, an honest acceptance of our uh, of, our, of our strangeness. Um, and we should take pride. You know, we talk so much about professional development, milestones of learning, but really, we very rarely pride ourselves on emotional learning. You know, imagine if somebody said to you, so how are you doing at work? What's going on? You know, what, what, you know, what, what are your milestones? And you said, well, you know, I'm trying to reduce the amount of times where I'm irritable because I haven't made, really been able to understand my underlying cause of my anxiety. And that's my, that's my goal for 2017, to really get below my 
not, I mean, people would go, well, this is such a strange person. But if you said, look, I'm, you know, I'm hoping to get a villa in Spain, and we're hoping to, you know, send the kids to private school, whatever, totally fine. But uh, these emotional milestones, you know, um, we should be taking pride. And this is where, of course, the workplace is a wonderful arena in which we can develop emotionally. Um, and one of the things that we can give everyone that we work with is the gift of a transferable emotional skill. You know, workplaces often say things like, well, we're teaching you skills that you can use across your whole life. But, you know, frankly, if you're in IT, and, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily going to wash across your whole life. But at the level of emotional intelligence, my goodness, yes, skills do transfer. And, you know, the workplace is where our immaturity, and I say everyone is immature, our immaturity first shows up, and it's a wonderful place, almost definitively shows up, and it's also a wonderful place in which we can start to, uh, uh, to, to, to address it. Um, so, look, all of us have grown up slightly crazy, um, uh, and, and we need to understand how. We need to, as it were, you know that old phrase, get in touch with our feelings. What does that really mean? You know, most of us are carrying around with us two dominant emotions, anxiety. Right? All of you are anxious, I'm anxious, we're all, we are almost programmed, we cannot avoid being anxious, right? and all of us are also carrying around a lot of hurt. We're far more vulnerable than we ever want us to think. We get slight, you know, someone doesn't, doesn't look at us in quite the right way, and something goes, oh, what's wrong, what's happened, you know, etc. We notice we're incredibly vulnerable, but it's an affront to our self-image. What, me? I'm getting upset about that thing that that person said? No, I don't believe it. So we shut out negative information about our hurt, and the other thing that we are is very anxious because things are always uncertain in a way, but we don't want to face up to it. And what do we do? Uh, again, it violates our self-image to, uh, to be see ourselves as so anxious. What do we do in order to cope with our anxiety? Distraction. And we have a phone, and we're going to use it a lot to keep at bay all sorts of unpleasant feelings. So we have wonderful strategies for keeping at bay our hurt and our, sad, uh, and our anxiety. Uh, unfortunately, both our hurt and our anxiety are full of really important signals to us about things we need to do, steps we need to take, uh, etc. It's a disaster for organizations that it's now so easy not to pay attention to our worries. Because in the stew of our worries, some of which are irrational and nonsensical, are some very uh, important insights, which we now have Twitter and other things to distract us from. So spending time on your own, you know how it is when you're forced to spend time on your own in, in airplanes which have no screen uh, in front of you, and you're suddenly thinking, oh, I'm alone with my mind. It's horrible, isn't it? And the reason it's horrible, the reason it's horrible is that you will have backed up an unbelievable amount of anxiety over the last few weeks, months, etc. And it's pulsing to get through. And most of us don't have a mechanism to feel safe and safely untangle the stew of uh, anxieties. We need to do that. There's a kind of uh, uh, self-hygiene, mental hygiene process that we need to do to untangle this. Uh, 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 we don't. Um, the other thing, of course, I don't need to tell you, but we are extremely bad communicators. Why are we bad communicators? Because for most of our lives and for most of history, people were not interested in what we had to say. You know, let's not be so unfair on ourselves. Most of the education system, it pays lip service to the idea, oh, what did you have to say? It doesn't really want to know. Most of the time, we know, we know that survival and success is dependent on shutting up. Um, it's, uh, we also know, catastrophic for organizations if this uh, process continues, uh, that there is so much information locked in, but people don't dare to communicate. The barrier to communication is, uh, you know, is simply so, uh, so high. Um, the other thing, of course, that all of us need to do is to know how to teach. Um, and the word teaching is a really unglamorous word, which is why 
I like to use it. Um, it's better than management or uh, you know, other skills, but teaching is something that every human needs to do, but we're very bad at doing it because what is teaching? Teaching is the skill that enables you to get an idea from your head into the head of somebody else, and this is the number one skill of the workplace. Unfortunately, um, we tend to make two assumptions. The first assumption is that the other person already should know what it is we want them to know. And we get so anxious that they might not know. At the same time, we're so proud in thinking that we've already told them so we don't need to tell them again that we don't say anything and simply get more and more agitated and more and more irritable until finally we burst and accuse them of not knowing something we've never properly taught them. We are extremely bad communicators. Um, the other background anxiety is the feeling that it is illegitimate to try and educate people to become better versions of themselves. There's a background feeling that if you really... It, this shows up most clearly in relationships, but it's there throughout our culture. You know how in relationships, when sometimes you're trying to give a bit of feedback to your partner, and they'll some, say, cross their arms, and they say, well, I thought you loved me, and now it seems you're trying to change me. And, and at which point, if you're an educated, you know, civilized person, you're supposed to go, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm, you back off, because that's you know, a terrible thing. Hang on a minute. Of course I'm trying to change you. Because all of us have got a terrific amount to learn. Um, and if we insist on thinking that we don't have enough to learn, uh, enough to, and indeed that it's a betrayal of the emotion of love to try and teach someone, that's a real problem. So imagine how it is when it's translated into the workplace. Any feedback is in, immediately interpreted as criticism. We need a culture where it's immediately seen that everybody has to progress emotionally, that everybody is fragile and yet moving and capable of moving to a place of greater emotional maturity. Without that background thought, you're never going to get it a, 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 across. Um, so, you know, I love the idea of the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks, when they looked at the development of a human being, said that it's the essence of love to teach someone something that it isn't a betrayal, it isn't a sense that they're imperfect, it is a recognition of how much more perfect they could still be. Uh, and it's not an insult. Um, we don't tend to give ourselves that latitude. We don't admit to ourselves that developing ourselves and other people is an act of generosity. It is not an insult. Of course we're imperfect, and of course uh, uh, we, we need to, to, to grow. Um, you know, in the modern world, um, one of the things that people are questing for in uh, organizations is meaning. It's come up uh, today already. It will continue coming up. It's a word. You know, what's fascinating is how many people leave organizations and they say, oh, well, you know, the pay was good and the canteen was nice, but ah, I don't know, there's something to do wrong with meaning, right? What does that mean? Um, what human beings crave above all else, and it's really paradoxical, is to serve, it's really odd because we think that a servant is like a low... I don't want to be a servant. You do. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you pick this up in the games of children. If you've got children, you know that one of, probably one of their favorite games is playing waiter and like going around with, with a tray and offering you something. You know, there's a certain age when, when kids go through the waiter phase, right? And, and everyone goes, oh, thank you very much. Oh, and they pat them on the head. And that's really, really nice, right? And, uh, well, you know, we, we have to recognize that this continues into adulthood. We want to be useful. And we want other people to, to, to have their lives in some ways ameliorated by our intervention. And one of the most dispiriting things is to work for an organization where you think, I don't know at the end of the day how I have changed anyone's life, right? Um, now, why is this? Why is there an epidemic of this? 
Don't blame yourselves. The reason is the structure of modern society. We, are, we live in a society of specialists, right? Um, the number one generalizations you can make about organizations in the modern world is they are large. The average organization in the UK is over 100 people. They are large. What happens when an organization gets large? You get further and further away from knowing how that organization is changing anyone's life. So there are, you know, when, by the time there are 100 people, most of those 100 people will not be in daily contact with the things that are changing somebody else's life. That organization will be a lot more efficient because there is enormous efficiency in specialization. But the human cost of specialization is disconnection and loss of meaning. You literally, you know, we once did a survey uh, with, with a large organization where there was a problem around this. And we said to people, what's your favorite job? And the weird favorite jobs that came up, the two favorite jobs that kept coming up, we gave them a list of options, a list of 20 options. The two that were most commonly ringed were one, um, uh, running a small B&B, &B, and two, running a cake shop. Now, those are idiotic tasks, and you mustn't ever... I mean, you know, anyone who's gone anywhere near those jobs, they're terrible jobs. But why are they interesting as fantasies? They're interesting as fantasies because these are jobs of change, where you bring your own psychology and talent to the development of another human being. You literally see it. You, know, you go into the cake shop, you make your cake in the morning, you sell it in the evening, and you, in a small but decisive way, change somebody's life. We don't do this normally in large organizations. So what does a large organization need to do? It sounds naive. We hear the word a lot, but this is really what it means. We need to tell our story. Any organization that makes money is helping other people's lives, by definition. You can't make money by making people's lives worse, or not for very long, you'll go out of business. So you are helping people. But the reason why most of the people in the organization can't feel it is that the thing is too large, and the reason, and what you need to do is to tell the story in the right way. Unfortunately, most organizations are... Um, you know, so vast. It's like, you know, why do we enjoy watching football? We enjoy watching football because it takes 90 minutes. It's on a pitch. The rules are simple. You can see the players, and you, there's a clear outcome after 90 minutes. If you compared most workplaces, most workplaces are like a game of football with roughly 25 balls on a pitch. The pitch is maybe 35 square kilometers large. It's maybe in 10 different countries. It takes place over five years, and we can't work out where the ball is. It's total chaos, right? So we lose the thread. We don't know what What's going on, right? And so no wonder we rush to football in the evening. What an organization needs to do is to commentate, like a commentator. It needs to tell the story and say, look, there's the ball. It's moving towards the left. It's coming to the right. It's going on the 35-kilometer uh, leap towards the goal, whatever it may be. But the point is we're learning to tell our story in a way that is uh, uh, coherent. Um, I could only touch on a very few things today. But look, the key takeaway is we are emotional creatures. Um, because we are emotional creatures, we mustn't deny our fragility in the emotional area. All of us are damaged by our past, uh, and we make the damage always much worse by being in denial. We need a culture where we can honestly admit to our fragilities, where we can get to understand ourselves. We work on self-knowledge, and we've become less of a peril to be around. Most of us are too irritable, are too, um, uh, we're engaged in long sulks, we are scheming in a Machiavellian way. Uh, you, you recognize these patterns. These are emotional patterns. We're clever people hampered by emotional deficiencies. The workplace of the future needs to take emotional knowledge as seriously as we do any other area of modern business. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this ChangeBoard Future Talent podcast. To register for your place at this year's Future Talent Conference on March the 22nd in London, where we'll explore the theme Skills to Thrive in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, visit ftconference.changeboard.com. <laughs> <laughs>